At the Flying Show last year, I met a chap called John Leighty on the PM Aviation Stand. John is one of the founders of uh, Flying for Freedom, which aims to train injured ex-servicemen to fly microlights as part of their rehabilitation into civilian life. In addition, Flying for Freedom are launching an expedition to the South Pole where they'll be trying to uh, get a team of uh, pilots to fly flexwing microlights to the Pole and back. I caught up with John via Skype recently, just after his return from the press launch at the Tower of London. First off, I wanted to know how the launch had been received. So you've been busy with um, all these uh, press launches, etc. I saw all the videos that uh, you've put up on YouTube. Very good. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that was that was quite a week. Um, it takes quite a lot of out of you. And, of course, the big thing is, is I, I think I probably undercalled the worry of having two aircraft at the Tower of London. Yeah. One of which isn't mine. <laughs> Because <laughs> yeah, we borrowed the P&M demonstrator yeah. um, for the Pulsar. Um, and Robin Craig nicely came up. But even even then, it's sort of like we were in a public area. Yeah. Then we were in another public area. And then we were in the tower, which meant moving it three times. So actually, to rig and de-rig twice, three times, takes a I mean, I didn't do it the third time. I was stuck doing presentations then. It was a lot of effort, yeah. actually. I'm probably, I think I probably undercalled that. And then because it's the Tower of London, they kick you out at nine o'clock. So it was all a bit rushed. Right. <laughs> you got a lot of coverage, though, eh? Yeah, um, brilliant coverage. So we got the um, Daily Express, the Times, and a half-page spread in the Daily Star, all of which I've got. Um, we then got a daytime, uh, sorry, a morning slot with Eamon Holmes on Sky News. Brilliant. And then two Sky live Sky News broadcasts during the day. Uh, one with Digby Jones, one just general interview. Um, and then in parallel to that, we got some coverage from BBC Scotland, um, ITV Anglian, ITV Yorkshire, and I think ITV Time Tees goes out tonight. So basically, wherever there was a team member, we, we managed to get some coverage, I think. And, uh, no, Mark... Nothing from ITV Wiltshire. <laughs> <laughs> they obviously don't want to speak to me. But, you know, it's, it's, just because I've got all my legs and arms, I mean, I think that's a bit mean. Yeah, yeah. It's how it how it goes, unfortunately. Uh, did um, Digby Jones say that he was actually paying for one of the aircraft himself? He, he bought the aircraft, yeah. Very so nice the one. the quick R we bought the quick R demonstrator from P and M. Yeah, and uh, it was Digby that donated the money for that. So when we asked him to be a patron, he said, "How can I be? We we be involved?" And we said, "Well, with just just your support." And he said, "No, no, how can I be involved?" And he said, "I want to put some money towards it." And we said, "Well, how much?" And when he kind of said how much, we kind of took a gulp and said, would you like to buy us our first training aircraft? Correct. So we did, and we called it the Flying Dig. <laughs> um, not the Flying Pig, um, yeah. but the Flying Dig. He oh, likes that. So I'm going to get the Flying Dig done up in letters and stick it on the uh, King Post. <laughs> okay. I had heard that the project was going to be called the British Antarctic Microlite Expedition. So next up, I asked John to tell me more about the expedition itself. Right, the British Antarctic Microlite Expedition is actually um, just a project now. It started out as everything we were doing, but it is now just a project within Flying for Freedom, which is an organisation that's fallen out of what we set out to do. Okay. So the story goes back to 2002, and in 2002 I met my co-founder, James Harris, who had just come back from leading the first ever British Army Antarctic Expedition. Um, and we met at the Southampton Boat Show, 
and I was very impressed. And ever since then, I have kind of hassled him relentlessly to run an expedition with me to Antarctica with microlites. And when I first spoke to him, he said, John, the reason that no one's ever done this is because, like, have you seen the weather down there? Um, so, yeah, I, probably for about six and seven years, it was, it was me being serious, but him not realising that we were ser I was being serious, which yeah. is typically me. So in about 2009, um, I changed jobs, became a contractor, found I had a lot of time on my hands in between contracts. So I actually sat down and did a plan. And I, I, it, it seemed to me to be a silly plan, but when I showed it to James, he said, goodness gracious me, that could work. So we spent six months planning an able-bodied expedition to Antarctica. That was me, James, and the best pilots we could think of, hence recruiting Richard Meredith Hardy in. Um, and probably about six months into that planning process, and we met with a couple of sponsors, and we got a patron, um, we kind of sat down and said, well, actually... It would be an advantage if you were in this expedition and you had a prosthetic leg, which sounds a bit of a strange claim, but if I can kind of explain, doing a mounting an expedition to Antarctica is all about miles per gallon. It's all about how far you can go on as you know as much fuel as possible. Yeah. Because when you go to Antarctica, you have to take everything with you. Um, you know, there's no garages, there's no stores, you can't rely on stopping anywhere. Even the bases down there have a rule that says they can't help you. So you can't kind of pitch up at the British Antarctic Survey or the American Air Base at, um, you know, McMurdo and ask for assistance. It's yeah. just not done. And it actually is a breach of the Antarctic Treaty to kind of try and go down there if you're not supported. Yeah. So you have to be 100% self-sufficient. Now, in that sort of basis and under those conditions, miles per gallon becomes extremely important to you because every ounce of fuel you take down to the pole costs a fortune. So you start looking at how light you can make everything. And when you start adding up a pilot and their kit and their food and a tent and survival gear, you suddenly realize that, you know, the lighter you are, the better it is. So I'm probably one of the only people you know, trying to lose weight before you go to the pole. Most people put it on yeah. and to get a bit of body fat on there. Um, uh, hence a serious training regime. But whilst we were discussing the weight of pilots, I kind of did say to James, you know what, if you had a prosthetic leg or two prosthetic legs, they probably weigh less than a real leg. And even if they didn't, you could actually take legs that did because um, you would take special Antarctic legs. And that's where the idea kind of stemmed from. So we took the idea to the MOD. The MOD said, um, okay, prove to us that microlighting can be something that injured service guys can do. And there you, you have it. So um, we, we kind of transformed the expedition from an able-bodied expedition to, you know, a, 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 an expedition that would cater for able-bodied and disabled people and would just be a slightly bigger expedition and a slightly bigger achievement for everybody. Okay. Uh, so exactly what is Flying for Freedom then? So Flying for Freedom was, well, Flying for Freedom actually was kind of, is now what we are. So it's it's basically the entity that, that we now operate under. We formed it earlier this year, and it's a partnership organization to help for heroes. So the story, again, you know, and it is a bit historical, comes back to how we convinced the MOD that we could take serving personnel with us to Antarctica and that microlighting might be a good um, activity for injured service guys to you know, uh, basically do. So 
the army kind of allocated to us um, a major who looks after adaptive sports, Jimmy Hendrickson, and we ran a series of trials at Kemble where we were looking to recruit six guys to come with us to Antarctica. And the trial itself and the selection process would then kind of identify whether this was something that injured service guys should get, you know, um, get involved in. The trial was successful. You know, certainly we, we, we proved that microlighting was, was very, you know, very sought after. We had 40 applicants, um, some of whom we couldn't see on the day for surgical commitments or, or various reasons like that. So we saw about 20 people at Kemble. Now, understand, we, we were only looking for six. So I'd kind of banked on flying ability and, and medical history and availability to kind of naturally cut that down. It didn't happen. When we put all 20 guys in the microlights, they all flew beautifully. There wasn't one guy there. there was, well, that's untrue. We saw two guys who discounted it purely because they had other things to do. But basically, we had 18 guys that all wanted us to come to the poll, wanted to come to the poll, six places. So we had to go through a really painful X factor sort of selection process where we were deciding who would be the best person to go. And it just didn't feel right. Um, you know, there, there's no reason why guys that have been through the, the kind of stories that they've all gone through shouldn't have had a place with us. So I sat down with our patrons and my co founder, James, and said, look, Rather than this be all about the expedition, we've stumbled upon something that is is good. You know, we've got a huge you know, tranche of guys wanting to come out of Headley Court and Tedworth to fly with us. All we need to do is to make that probably the focus of what we're doing. So we had a chat with our patrons and we had a chat with the ADS, who are one of our sponsors, and they agreed and said, great idea, let's make you know, flying, flying in microlites a legacy project. So on an, an annual basis, we could give bursaries or scholarships to guys coming out of Tedworth House or had, they had the court post-rehabilitation. So, you know, they're fixed. They're, they're 100% OK. We just provide something that gives them a challenge, something to motivate them, you know, post-recovery, something to give them a new interest. Um, and that's really where Flying for Freedom comes. The link to Help for Heroes came that we didn't want to make Flying for Freedom into a charity. Um, there are loads of charities supporting injured service guys and really we wanted to just focus on flying, focus on providing the best service we could in that. So by going to Flying for Free, you know, going to Help for Heroes and being a partner organisation, we get the benefit of Help for Heroes support, administration, we have a Help for Heroes bank account and effectively we exist as a, a project within Help for Heroes. So over and above just flying to the uh, South Pole, you're also going to be using flex wings to sort of train people to, to fly, and uh, uh, that would be part of their recovery from uh, from being injured at, at war. Is that correct? That's correct, yeah. Now, obviously, you know, when somebody's injured, um, they've been part of a, a tightly knit team. So we've got a couple of guys, you know, parachute regiment. They're used to operating in a, you know, a stand of guys, very, very close, closer than brothers, closer than families. They go out to somewhere like um, Afghanistan, they're highly trained, they're highly able, they're highly active, and all of a sudden they get whacked by an IED or shot. They wake up in a hospital in Birmingham or in Headley Court being told what they can and can't do. Um, the MOD then kick in, and the MOD have a fantastic recovery, um, you know, recovery and rehabilitation team. You know, they take the guys, they give them a positive mental focus, and fix them. 
But post being fixed is kind of where you've got a guy who's had a significant life change. You know, prior prior to you know being in the army, might have been a keen footballer, keen rugby player. You know, these are active guys; they do active sports. And all of a sudden, they have to come to terms with the fact: I'm not going to be back in Afghan with my mates. I'm not going to be part of an active unit. And actually, I'm probably never going to play football again. Um, they might be able to, but it's about what they believe at that point. So the key to kind of keeping that positive mental attitude going post recovery is to have something that engages the guy, wants him to, you know, wants them to get it out of bed, and actually something that actually kind of gives them something more as well. And that's why we found flying was really, really good. Flexwing flying is a high adrenaline, very exciting activity. Um, you know, as if, if you're a qualified pilot, you'll know you've got to do air law, you've got to do navigation, human performance. There's some study involved. It's quite focused. It's quite structured. And we found that the guys really took to it. And then we found that there's a secondary thing as well. And that is that there are some guys who come back from Afghan and, you know, the last thing they remember was an airlift. You know, the last time they remember Afghan was being airlifted out in a helicopter with, with tubes and, and doctors around them. So... There's, there's actually kind of quite a nice, um, if I, I, I want to say two fingers up at my history, um, kind of approach where the guys actually see it as a nice cap to what has gone on in their past. That by learning to fly, they kind of overcome and step out of what their past has been. Yep. And it's all very positive. And we picked Flying for Freedom, funny enough, because when you listen to the guys, all of them, um, all of them talk about the freedom of flight how that that's what sort of attracts them, hence the Flying for Freedom name. Okay. Uh, are you going to train these guys up just to fly as uh, sport pilots, or uh, are they, are they going to move on to uh, bigger and better things? Oh, no. My my ambition for this year, um, and funny enough, I, it, I, I almost wish I hadn't thought of Antarctica because um, it, it does tend to kind of engage people's minds. But for me, the most important this thing this year is we could well create two or three assistant flying instructors out of the guys that we've got. Um, what surprised us um, immensely when these guys started flying, and I don't know why in hindsight, because they're all fit, active, intelligent guys, but they just took to flying so quickly. I mean, we've had guys, you know, solo within eight and nine hours. So, they're, they're, you know, they're taking to the lessons and taking to the, the task really, really well. So because they kind of have this natural affinity for the microlight and what they're doing, they're already talking about what to do next. So, you know, we're encouraging them to do the nationals, encouraging them to around Britain. We'll ourselves be doing some events, you know, flight across Europe. We'll do some racing. We'll do some air show appearances. But some of them off their own hats have said, so I could go on and become an assistant flying instructor. And actually, if you think about it, if you've gone to the South Pole in a microlight and flown in those conditions, yeah, you're probably very well qualified to take on that as a task. <laughs> yeah. So by the end of this year, it's my hope that we've probably got at least two of the guys on an AFI course so that we could have disabled guys teaching disabled guys to fly. Brilliant. Um, and that would be a real achievement. Excellent. Well done. Uh, so out of that uh, 18 that you mentioned there, how many do you think are actually going to go to the pole with you? Well, we, we had to select 18 down to 6. Yeah. Um, we cheated and we went 18 to 2. And it was that painful kind of bit that made me realise we had to do this every year. Yeah, we've got no right to tell guys coming out of Afghan without arms and without legs or losing an eye or incredibly burnt 
that you know they don't have a, a chance to fly. It's just unfair, yep. and and it's probably more important for us to get those guys in the microlight and getting them recovering than it is to go to Antarctica. Yep. So we we pick twelve. The twelve have naturally attrition down to about eight, um, and we we plan to take all eight guys to the pole. People often ask me, am I going to fly to the pole? And I always say, only if it's not going to stop one of the other guys. I'm adamant that we get, um, you know, a guy, a wounded and injured guy to the pole. Um, and if they can do that and do that first, then we really achieve. Because no one's done it before. And that's got to be, you know, a, a worthwhile goal to support and, and do as much as you can. Certainly. So if it means I sit in a camp and make tea, I'll sit in a camp and make tea. As long as one of those guys overflies the pole, that's brilliant. Have you got a lot of uh, a long background in flying microlights, John? Um, I've flown microlights for about 15 years. I started flying at um, Kemble Flying Club with uh, David Young oh, way back uh, a long time ago in an old uh, AX3. Um, I progressed onto an MW5 microlight, which I bought and kind of renovated. Um, and then I kind of bought uh, my own Xair, and I built that with my grandfather, who used to fly Lancasters in the war and used to go around uh, flying over round and round with Wiltshire, basically. Um, I really enjoy flying. I like building microlights and projects as much, um, which is probably where this expedition kind of has its appeal to me. Um, if I can be around microlights and, and progress, you know, what they do and, and, and how they go, that's that's brilliant. And in the background, of course, my grandfather's still alive. God bless him. He's in his 90s. And, and of course, he still gives me a kick to make me do things. <laughs> Great stuff. <laughs> going, going for a flight with him is very good. It's like taking your GFT over and over again. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's an experience. But then that's fair. He did finish his flying at the Central Flying School for the RAF, so I suppose I have to take that kicking. <laughs> uh, what aircraft will you be uh, flying down there? Well, our chosen ride, had we gone this year, which was, was a potential off uh, option, um, we've actually chosen to go next year in December 2014 because it gives us a bit more time to prepare. And our aircraft choice changes. So had we gone this year, we'd have had to take the quick GTR which, you know, is a great machine. It's got a great wing on it. Stars is brilliant. Takes a lot of partly load off the pilots. Um, but the Catch-22 is that, um, you know, you're quite exposed. So we took one look at the Quick R, which gives you a bit of added protection. And basically, that's what we're hoping to take to the pole. OK, just uh, briefly, just describe roughly what the, the Pulse R is. It's quite a revolutionary trike, isn't it, the... Uh... Yeah, the Pulsar is, um, it's a new concept. It's really kind of coming out of prototype stage at P&M. Um, it's not a lot different in performance terms from the quick GTR. It's got the same wing. Um, it's got a slightly better engine or slightly uprated engine on, in, in one of the two of the versions. We'll probably take the standard 912 with us um, because simple's better in the pole. We don't want things breaking down. Um, yeah, we'll have to do some trials. I think there's a fuel injection version which might be better for the cold. Yeah. Um, but what we really liked about it was the fact that it's got a full pilot cowl and a full engine cowl. And believe it or not, even though the pilot cowl is great for reducing your cold, um, the starting of the engine was the key bit that kind of drew us to think, well, cowled engine is going to be easier to preheat yeah. and um, keep warm because starting is going to be our, our killer, I think. Yes. My... Um, my my pet recurring nightmare is that our documentary is just going to be, you know, 
eight injured guys and the team stood around trying to start a microlight at minus 30, minus 40 degrees, um, which if anyone's kind of hand-cranked propeller, it's not fun. You can run out of steam quite quickly. Um, so we're taking like a, a, a preheat. It's developed in northern Alaska. And we're going to connect that via hoses to the cowling on the pulsar, which will allow the engine to be preheated before we take off. Another benefit is um, the pulsar itself, because it's quite a, um, it's got quite its, you know, uh, quite a, a good structure um, for the pilot in terms of the cowl. We have a tent, so one of the things we've got to be able to do is um, be self-sufficient. And if bad weather approaches, we have to land and make camp. So carrying your own tent places you a problem. Do you get inside a tent and leave your aircraft to be blown to pieces in high Antarctic winds? Well, no. So we're going to take a specially built tent hangar. And the Pulsar's got the added advantage of, of having quite a lot of structure for us. So our tent will actually be the Pulsar with a tent over the top of it. Wow. So we dig a trench underneath the Pulsar, which is where we can stand up um, and potentially have a, a sleeping um, ledge in the snow. And then the tent goes over the top of the pulsar itself, wing off. So we'll fold the wing and, and stick it in a, you know, a, a carry bag and, and probably a trench. But we'll actually sit inside a tent with the pulsar, using the um, seats of the pulsar as sort of a bit of comfort. You know, you'd be able to sit down and cook. And typically for our team, of course, if you've got a prosthetic leg, it's a lot easier to put it on and off while sitting down. Oh, so the pulsar itself becomes our tent. Will you be actually flying these with skis on or with the wheels? Yeah, we, we've um, looked in there. So um, skis have been quite extensively uh, tested in uh, France and the Alps. Um, if you look on YouTube, you'll see you know some fantastic footage of guys flying off skis. And we plan to take a, a set of you know custom. So we'll take the wheels off, bolt skis on the bottom, probably a rigid snowboard type ski. Um, so that, you know, modern snowboards have got so much flex in, they'll be good for landing on kind of multiple surfaces. Yeah. Uh, having spoken to my brother who has worked in the Arctic Circle in Canada, he says that uh, materials that uh, you would normally expect to be uh, flexible, like rubber, take on a whole different um, set of characteristics and become brittle almost, and the same with metal. How are you going to adapt these aircraft so that they uh, perform in uh, Antarctic conditions? Well, we, we our plan this year, we have our one aircraft, which is a GTR, um, which we're obviously training on. So the guys have got to finish their initial flight training. Our next purchases are hopefully going to be two to potentially five. We won't need five straight away pulsars. Um, we're going to take one and trial it with the guys for flying, um, whilst another one goes off to Richard Meredith Hardy. And EADS, um, obviously, are a, a big contractor and make things like Airbus and Eurocopter. They've allowed us some support with a cold weather chamber and have offered to take out some of the things that will change under temperature. So you're quite right. Um, anything with a kind of plasticized wire, um, fuel tube, rubberized tubing, just basically work hardened. It becomes the cold, the repeated cold just makes it kind of turn to plastic. And over time, it will just crumble and fall apart. So we're going to have our own completely, you know, Antarctic-proof wiring loom for yeah. the engine and the aircraft, and similarly with the fuel system. Um, and that has already been, you know, is already under discussion and design with the ADS's um, engineers. Um, that solves that problem. The other problem, actually, which uh, you, you know is is a, a, a little less obvious, 
is if you look at a, a, a flex swing, there are an awful lot of you know tiny bolts and little wire clips. Um, and when you're de-rigging a wing in a hanger on a bit of carpet, or even you know on a piece of grass, if yeah. you drop a um, a bolt or a little wire clip, then the likelihood is you'll find it again. But if you do that on snow, it's going to disappear into the snow, and you've lost it forever. So um, one of the things we've got to look at is look at some of the smaller fixings, some of the wire clips, and just work out ways that are you know going to be easy to de-rig in gloves and not drop stuff so that we lose it. Okay, and of course you'll have to have them uh, adapted for these guys that have uh, two prosthetic legs and one arm, for example. Yeah, well, funny enough, that that was quite a surprise for us. Um, so when we started flying, it's only really the um, amputees, the below leg amputees, sorry, above knee amputees that are having trouble in the flex wing, mainly because, of course, you've got the brakes on it, which we don't need in Antarctica, and you've got the foot throttle for landing. So just by the addition of putting a, a hand throttle on the bar on the Pulsar, we'll actually be able to, to land. You know, in, in Antarctica, there's no landing strip as such you just find you know a, a good piece of uh snow or ice to land on into wind and there's nothing to hit yeah um you know you won't land in a, a flock of penguins hopefully um <laughs> you know what you've got to try and avoid is the terrain in antarctica so there are things like sastrugi which is um prehistoric ice that's formed over millions of years that literally is harder than concrete um, and, and, you know, I'll take out a car, let alone a microlite. So there's things like that to avoid. But pretty much you can land in any direction you like um, and it should be quite good conditions. So our guys don't need to break. They just need to have the hand throttle um, fitted to the, the microlite. Okay. Here in the UK, it's a different matter. And actually, one of the reasons Lord Digby Jones bought us an aircraft was we had a number of guys that we just couldn't train. So we were training on Kemble Flying School standard trike. Um, it didn't have adaptive uh, controls, so we met up with Dave Sykes, had a look at what he uses, and asked Pegasus to put that on our first trike that we've taken. And that's been great because it's meant um, we've got a guy, uh, Luke Sinnott, who's a double above the knee amputee, um, and that's just meant that the, the new trike is going to open up a whole, you know, it's, training's a lot easier for him. Um, the other kind of end of the scale would be the guys that um, have kind of mobility issues. So we've got two guys flying, well, three guys really, who um, have basically one arm. So I've got one guy who's partially paralyzed. His arm works for a lot of the time, all the way through to Jacko Van Gas, who's got no arm at all. Um, and initially, we thought they wouldn't be able to fly a flex wing at all. Um, and lo and behold, the guy that um, trailblaze that's a guy called Captain Martin Hewitt he's retired he was um, on Prince Harry's expedition to the North Pole we sat him down before he started training um, I sat him down and said look Martin no one's ever trained one armed on a flex wing like this before that we know of there's no precedent for it the instructors are very worried that you won't be able to cope with the you know heavy roll on a flex wing um, and even if you do we're not sure how we'll certify you and sign you off uh, he then went and sat down at Kemble, did his pre-flight briefing with Mike Oakley, who's uh, doing the training. Mike sat down and said exactly the same. And then before he left for the aeroplane, chief flying instructor David Young sat him down and said exactly the same. So he had it three times. Um, he leapt in the aircraft, you know, blew everyone away and basically was at solo standard within about eight to nine hours. So every lesson, textbook perfect, no problems whatsoever. And I think that's one of the... the the, the things about um, this expedition and, and flying for freedom that I've learned 
And that is that we're very quick to judge and assume what guys coming out of um, Headley Court or Tedworth can and can't do. And actually, they can do a lot. And Dave Sykes, I think, summed it up for me best because I was sort of telling him this story. And he said, well, if you think about it, John, um, Martin knows no better. You know, he's never sat in a flex wing and learned to fly and then lost his arm. He, you've just put him in an aircraft and instantly he has to fly it with what he has available. Yeah. So he'll find a way of doing it. And that's one of the, the really great things. The guys don't come across in any way as disabled. We, we, we don't really like using the term. You know, they, they've just got a different range of controls that they use that we, we wouldn't use. Yeah. And if I'm blunt, most of them sickeningly after a couple of hours <laughs> flying were probably better than I was. <laughs> um, they just take to it really, really well. Uh, Richard Meredith Hardy has uh, flown uh, over some very high mountains, hasn't he, in the past, and set some records for height. So I, I guess he knows about uh, yeah, cold we, flying. Absolutely. When when I first put the expedition together, I mean, I'm I'm a, a hobby. I'm a sport pilot. I fly around in Wiltshire. I mean, you know, I've got no experience of flying off ice. Um, you know, it, for me, it was always about get some really good pilots and really experienced expedition pilots on board. So um, I, I, I made up a list. Um, on that list was David Young of Campbell Flying School, having flown in Nepal and, and with Christina Dodwell across the Sahara. And I asked him, but unfortunately, he's just, you know, his partner's just had a, a little baby, so he couldn't go. Um, my, another option would have Jerry, been Jerry Breen out in Portugal, but he's retired. And in between kind of asking David and asking Jerry, someone said, had you thought of asking Richard? So I did, not knowing him. And I was kind of blown away a little because he said, oh, great, I've always wanted to go and fly on Mount Vincent. <laughs> so Richard set himself the task of flying over the world's seven highest peaks. Um, he's done Everest, which was astounding, and then gone on to do um, Akakonjia in South America. Um, and some really technically difficult mountain flying. And because Antarctica's all about weather was really a, a really good choice for us in those ty types of things. Um, you know, he, he's got a really pragmatic view to what's practical, how the aircraft could work, how to make this happen, um, and is, is great inspiration for the guys um, that we're training with. And he should know what to wear when you're flying in uh, minus 40 well, degrees. Uh, yeah, the, 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 what we wear stuff is quite interesting because, of course, it was more important when we were looking at the GTR than the Pulsar. The Pulsar gives you quite a lot of um, cold air coverage. It, you know, the, the air is, is forced past you. If you've been lucky enough to fly in it, it's it's quite covered. Um, having said that, we're looking at taking some RAB expedition suits, um, which you would use if you were, you know, going to the Antarctic anyway. Um, and on top of those goes a cold weather wind liner. Um, we probably won't use, initially we thought we'd use some heated sort of body warmers and circulated heat off the engine. But the more we think about it, the more we, we're going to try and just self-insulate um, we might have an electric helmet, we might have some electric gloves, but you know, the more technology we rely on to stay warm, the more chance that will fail and, and go wrong. So we're actually trying to just do it with um, you know, maybe thermal heat pads if we need to have any yeah. additional heat. Although they're slightly heavy, they're just slightly less technical, and that's just one less thing to go wrong. Does it have a heater in the pulsar? <laughs> Yeah, you would think it would if you've seen it. Yeah. Uh, no. <laughs> um, it does have a ballistic parachute. Oh, um, there you go. Which impressed everybody. Yep. Um, but we won't be taking that because it's probably too heavy. All <laughs> oh, right. Uh, and you mentioned EADSR giving you some assistance. Who else uh, is uh, offering Oh, we, we have help? done really well. And we're in a really strange situation where um, my background is in marketing and fundraising. 
Um, and normally, if you go off and you speak to one company, you won't get support from another. Yet, I have Flybe. Um, Jim French is one of our patrons. Flybe is supporting us. And I have British Airways supporting us. Um, you know, they're giving us flight and, and monetary support towards training and going to the pole. Then, in a similar vein, we've got EADS, who make Eurocopter, and Augusta Westland. And I think, um, I think it's a testament to companies like that to see past competition and just recognize what a great thing these guys are setting out to achieve. Um, and it's nice that they kind of see that that's you know, beyond any competition that they yeah. might have in the market or not have in the market. And of course, the UK forces, Army, Air Force, etc., will be helping you out with resources, I presume? Well, the, um, the, we have patrons from across the forces who are very helpful. Um, and one of the things that um, we benefit from, of course, where we're training active service guys... Um, through flying for freedom, you know, they, they are basically on recovery duty. So they're still serving personnel. So we get support, you know, from, from the, the forces in that and the guys, you know, aren't having to get hotel rooms to come and train or anything like that. They can come and stay in local barracks. So, you know, we've, we've got a, a, a number around Kemble that they can go and, go and pull on. Okay. And yeah, very supportive. Um, you know, one of the nice things early on was, um, when we went to see the MOD and Help for Heroes, Normally, when you do a project like this, um, you know, it, it, it's kind of like you're supporting the guys, so they pay money towards it. Yeah. So Help for Heroes, initially, when we met with them, said, how much do you want? And we said, well, actually, we want to kind of raise money for you. We don't really think we need necessarily for you to pay us money to do this. And actually, you know, we kind of not don't sit comfortably. I'll come back to why why in a minute. So we think through sponsor funding and individual funding, we can run this on its own and we don't need any of your money at all. To which they said, fantastic, we really like you. Um, the reason or the thinking behind that is actually when you look at how Help for Heroes operate and what a great job they do elsewhere. So in the greater scheme of things, um, we provide a great post-rehabilitation focus and training activity. But in terms of an urgency need, there are other things that should take precedence. So, you know, if a, a guy needs a wet room or his house converted or a lift or adapted controls in his car, those those are really important things and, and can make a real difference to somebody's job prospects in their life. So we didn't want to steal money from that. We wanted to raise additional money to do what we were doing and hopefully create enough of a noise that, that makes people realize what a great job, you know, charities like Help for Heroes do. Excellent. Great stuff. Uh, you say the trip is planned for December 2014? Yeah, our timetable at the moment looks thus. We have this year to raise what I would call our base layer funding, to use an Antarctic term. So we're digging deep to try and find some, you know, a, a good base of um, key sponsors and supporters, individuals as well, that get us to the end of this year with, with trained pilots, but who then engage with us in the long term for Antarctica. We then have an expedition that we have to mount in January, February, uh, i.e. this time next year, yeah. to northern Russia or Sweden, where we can test our aircraft down to minus 20, minus 25 degrees, um, which is kind of the point at which weird things happen. And it's not just about testing aircraft and technology, it's also about testing the team. So our technology testing includes testing prosthetic legs, testing limbs, testing you know, uh, how the guys react to the equipment, the equipment we've got. 
we then have what seems like a long period, but about um, eight to nine months where we can then refine that. And that's quite key because we know we'll find things that don't work because no one's ever done this before. So the cold weather testing um, is part of our Antarctic permit. Um, it then informs the kind of like all the modifications we need to do. We'll then load our kit probably on a container ship, um, although there there might be an airlift involved. I don't know yet. Um, probably in about uh, end of August um, next year, and then that will be contained down to Punta Arenas in Chile. And from Punta Arenas, we'll um, fly from there into the continent, um, mounting our expedition from the edge of the pole and, and down. And that will be about November time, 2013. Um, so we'll, it'll take us probably a good um, couple of weeks to establish a base camp, look at the weather, work out you know where we've got to go. And then it really depends on which plan. We have a plan A and a plan B. Plan A is completely unsupported, moving all the fuel forward by microlight. Plan B is, is moving it between pre-established fuel dumps that have been laid out for us on the ground. Um, but effectively, mad dash for the pole through the fuel dumps or you know, a slow, lots of flying backwards and forwards, sort of caterpillar fashion, flying our fuel forward, bringing up the team, fuel forward, bringing up the team, which there is a precedent for. One of the first um, Hillary expeditions did that with, with small light aircraft. Um, once we've then done to the pole with the expert out, and we'll probably be at the pole for probably January twenty four, sorry, twenty fifteen, which is the height of Antarctic summer. And the whole expedition probably will take in the region of about um, probably four to eight weeks, depending on weather and weather windows. How far is it from uh, the edge of? <coughs> it's um, just about eighteen hundred miles, so it's about the distance from the UK to Istanbul Gee and back. That's what. That's one way. <laughs> Well, no, no uh, one way to Istanbul and then back, because, of course, we've got to fly there and fly back. Yeah. And, of course, the other thing logistically is it's not just about getting there, getting your fuel, getting your, fu uh, getting your food. Everything we take to the pole has to come off with us, and I mean absolutely everything. Yes. You know, even what we eat <laughs> comes yeah. back with us oh dear. in a yeah. different form. <laughs> so, uh, you know, when you go to the pole, you have an environmental um, uh, commitment not to leave anything at the pole. Um, and so everything that we take with us has to come back. So logistically, it's as hard to get back from the pole as it is to go. Although, of course, no one really notices that bit of the expedition. Yeah. Um, obviously, the plan A and plan B, why is that still under question? Well, probably um, late summer this year, we're planning a little expedition test, depending on how much money uh, we raise from sponsors. Well, we'll probably take a microlight from the UK to Istanbul. We'll probably take a couple. Um, and we'll probably set off with a big chunk of fuel, I don't know, at Campbell or in Cornwall or somewhere, and literally set off and see whether it's possible logistically to fly our own fuel and stores forward yeah. um, in a kind of safer than doing it in the Antarctic way. And that will prove the whole concept of how, um, you know, how much flying and how the guys cope with that kind of plan. Okay. What sort of fuel would you need for uh, the microlight for Rotax? Um, well, we're going to have to take, you know, we don't really want to use Avgas, um, mainly because it can clog up the engine and, and that's just an added risk that we don't want. So it is going to be, you know, Mogas. Yep. Um, and it's quite a lot of it as well. You know, we're talking about taking probably between six and 8,000 litres to go there unsupported. Um, supported, it would be less because, you know, you can basically ask a, a big DC3, it's a 
turboprop DC-3 is called a Basler, which can actually you know fly out from um, the coast of Antarctica and literally shuck out big um, 225-litre drums of fuel, um, sat- satellite-marked, flag-marked um, fuel bases all the way down to the pole and back. Um, so it really depends on, on how we go down there. And MoGas would work at low temperatures, is that correct? Yeah, funny enough, the um, the temperature's not really an issue. I know um, Richard Meredith Hardy's obviously gone over Everest, and that, that peaked at minus 29. Um, the fuel, uh, yeah, tends to perform quite well. You've got to watch that, you know, water doesn't freeze in it and things like that, and the containers you take it in have got to be fairly well sealed. Um, the Antarctic Treaty means there are only a certain number of types of container that you can lose, use down there to, to avoid fuel spills. So, you know, some of that technology is actually already fairly well um, established for us. So as long as we can maintain the integrity of the fuel, we should be OK. Um, there is an argument to take kind of an alcohol. Um, I know that there was a 914 powered um, ski uh, like a, a big trimaran ski, you know, propeller-powered ski that set a world, you know, a world record from um, Union Glacier to the pole, and that used alcohol. But having talked it through with Richard, we just kind of feel it's all a bit risky. And actually, these engines fly every day, you know, millions and millions of hours on on MoGas, and that's probably the best way of doing it. Okay. Um, trying something new down at the pole just isn't a good safety plan. Uh, you said Richard wants to fly over Mount Vincent. Uh, is that uh, some sort of record he's going for there? Well, that, of course, um, Mount Vincent is one of the world's uh, seven highest peaks, and it's the world's most remote peak. So he set off um, to, to he set himself a personal kind of objective to fly over all seven. Um, having done Everest, uh, you would think that's the hardest, but in his mind, um, Vincent was always the hardest because it's the most remote. And most people, when they set out to climb the seven peaks, it's Vincent that stops them. It's it's actually tremendously hard to get to the pole and do anything. So when we approached him, it was kind of a bit of, oh, well, that's great, because I wanted to fly over Vincent. And, um, you know, as he looked at the whole project, obviously getting to the pole is, is the major objective. But, yeah, we, we, we hope to fly along and fly over Vincent. And as our exit route is close, um, is a place called Union Glacier, um, where we'll fly out via Aleutian Transport, that's pretty much on the Ellsworth mountain range, which is where Vincent is. So he, he's going to get the chance to do that. And the first microlight or flex wing to the, the pole is a record as well, I, I imagine? Well, we've got to be careful about use of the word record. It's definitely a first. So the way in which these things work is something only becomes a world record if it gets logged with uh, Guinness Records. Yeah. So we've had some initial discussions with them. Um, they have to agree on your plan for establishing the record and how you're going to measure and track it. So prior to going, that's something we'll have to do. So at the moment, we tend to say it's definitely a world first. Okay. Um, and that way we don't upset, you know, the record keepers. But, yeah, no one's ever flown a microlight down, you know, a reflective microlight down there, certainly. Um, I think somebody did try and fly an autogyro down there, and I suppose you could argue that's a microlight. Yeah, I know that um, a guy flew a powered parachute off a, a boat down there and again you could claim that's microlite so i'm quite clear always to say it's a flexwing microlite it would certainly be a first flexwing microlite and i'm pretty sure it'd be the first you know flexwing to fly to the pole although historically um if i want to go back in time of course um the first antarctic aviators were flying aircraft that are very close in performance to uh, a flexwing microlite so the first aircraft to overfly the pole was a ford trimotor um, the Americans, a guy called Richard Bird, threw it. 
And if you look up the uh, performance stats of a Ford Trimotor, you'll realize that they're pretty similar, even though it's a big aircraft with three engines, yeah. to a modern flex wing. Is that right? You know, so it cruises about 100, 110 miles an hour, and it's got about a 500-mile range, which is pretty much similar to what we're doing. Uh, and how many of the guys that actually go down there do you think will make it to the pole? Well, our current plan and wish is that we get all of them there. Yeah. So, you know, we're, we're hoping not to, and this comes down to money, and it comes down to sponsors and support. So, you know, the, 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 if we have to go on the cheap, then we might have to have the awful um, X-Factor picking again, which, you know, I'd rather stick my head in the oven. Um, but, you know, picking who's worthy enough to go to the poll would be a very difficult task with the eight guys we've got. Um, they've all earned their right in my mind to get there, so our plan is to try and get all of them there. Okay, uh, if somebody did want to help out financially or give you their support, how can they do that? Well, we've got a great website, which you can get to a really easy thing to remember, which is www.fly2pole.com, so that's flytopole.com. And on there, we've got a Get Involved page. Um, it is a bit fun. We kind of like lift in there some of the equipment that um, you know we need to buy and how much it costs. And then if you say buy or make a donation, you'll get to our Help for Heroes page, which is a Be My Charity page online, and you can make a donation there. Um, if you're a company or, uh, you know, a small company, you don't have to be a large one. You know, there's no exclusive rights to supporting this expedition by any means. Um, we've got a range of sort of packages where we'll work with companies to give them some profile in return for, you know, support or even technical support. Um, and again, you can get the details for contacting us off the website. Great. Well, I'll put all those links and the links to Twitter on the Flying Podcast website if people want to find them. Perfect. That's great. Well, thank you very much uh, for spending your time with today, John. That's excellent. No problems at all. John Leighty of Flying for Freedom there. A superb project and a great achievement if they can pull it off. Well worth sponsoring them if you've uh, got a few quid spare. As I said, all of the links you'll require for Fly to Pole and Flying for Freedom are on the Flying Podcast website at flyingpodcast.co.uk. There you can see what they're up to, who's involved, and uh, you can also see a map of their proposed route. Hopefully, we'll be doing a catch-up podcast with John and some of the pilots um, in training at some point in the future. Uh, I realise it's not quite as such a good cause, but if you are still feeling generous, you can uh, also donate a few bob to the podcast now uh, to help pay for my shoe leather and uh, such like. Look for the donate button on the Flying Podcast website. Don't forget to drop me an email if you'd like to suggest a subject for the podcast or even if uh, you'd like to take part. The email address, uh, as usual, is steve at flyingpodcast.co.uk. Okay, that's it for another episode. Thanks for listening. Speak to you again soon.